The title of our lesson, I have called it the second coming of Christ and the great tribulation. Now, it's already been pointed out by our brother Ian this morning that the second coming of Christ is profiled in the Apostles' Creed. Now, as we think about the second coming of Christ, I'd like to begin this discussion this morning by looking at three broad elements that are typically associated with Jesus Christ's return. Now, anytime you get into a discussion of the end-time events, things can get a little confusing. Um, Broadly speaking, in eschatology, there are several different schools of thought. There is uh, the the school of thought that is entitled, that's typically called preterism, which teaches that Jesus Christ has already returned, and that happened long ago. I don't think it's a strong position biblically, and I don't ascribe to it. Then we have uh, a school of thought called amillennialism, another school of thought called postmillennialism, and then you've got a school of thought called premillennialism, and each of those get that name, the premillennialists believe that Jesus will return prior to the millennium. The postmillennialists think he'll return after the millennium. The amillennialists think that the idea of a millennium is sort of a spiritual concept, and so they really don't ascribe the idea of a millennium at all. And so they believe typically in the return of Christ, but so, so there's a variety, and, and there's a few other schools of thought that I haven't even mentioned that don't really fit neatly into one of those four categories. Now, I, I typically would describe myself, if I was compelled, to say, well, I'm probably a, a premillennialist, meaning I believe that Jesus Christ will return prior to the millennium, and there is some sort of a thousand-year period uh, that Scripture alludes to that would be a, a wonderful time. Now, if you divide the premillennialists, you can say, well, there's Jesus Christ is coming prior to the millennium, and then you have, well, okay, um, we could divide that out into those who see the return of Jesus Christ and prophecy as being partly fulfilled and mostly fulfilled, and so you have sort of a, a futuristic premillennialist who think that most Bible prophecy remains unfulfilled, and then you have a a historicist who believes that most of the Bible prophecy has been fulfilled. Both of those are premillennial positions. So it can get a little bit confusing when you get into this eschatology stuff. Now, all of it is really fascinating and interesting. But you can sure go down to some rabbit trails pretty, pretty quick. Well, I won't say rabbit trails. That's not quite fair. You can just, have, you just get into the details, and there's plenty to, to debate and squabble about. But the purpose this morning isn't really to lay out any of those. The purpose this morning is to really focus on three broad elements that a lot of us will agree on. And in, in, in terms of these broad elements, uh, all the premillennialists will agree, and even many of the amillennialists would agree. And I'm not sure about the postmillennialists, but <clears throat> I want to just bring three things to your attention. Are you ready? So let's look at that. If you have your outline, you might look down to there. I'd like to look at three thoughts. We have that which happens prior, immediately prior to his return, that which unfolds at his return, at the moment of his return, and that which will follow will occur immediately after the return of Jesus Christ. So let's look at it this way. Jesus Christ returns immediately prior to his return, there's going to be a period, I believe, of intense tribulation. That's immediately prior to his return. At the moment of his return, there will be a resurrection of the dead and the regathering of the children of Israel to return to the land of promise. And then immediately after his return, there will be a great judgment a judgment of the wicked. Now, two of these elements of the three are mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. We have the resurrection of the dead at his return, and we have the, 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 the judgment, the judgment of the quick and the dead immediately following his return. 
some kind of judgment, some kind of, uh, you know, bad things are going to be happening. All right, so those are the three broad elements. Now, as we look at those three elements, and, and I'm trying to, trying to keep things, you know, relatively straightforward and simple here. Let's just have a quick look at two of them, and then we'll jump into the, the area of our study this morning that's going to take more time. Regarding the resurrection and the regathering, there are a number of Old Testament passages and New Testament passages that are going to allude to this. So I've written down on that outline four different passages, but I could have come up with many more, that talk about the resurrection and the regathering. Now, one of my favorite passages that deal with this is in Ezekiel 37, because it's spelled out so plainly as you make your way through that chapter. That chapter is famous for being known as the dry bones chapter. Some people spiritualize it. I think that is completely incorrect. I think it is a very literal event. But let me read for you three verses in Ezekiel 37 that speak of the resurrection and the regathering from an Old Testament prophet. And we'll start in verse 12. Ezekiel 37, 12 reads like this. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. So there, in just one simple short verse, we have the resurrection and the regathering. And the regathering is of glorified, resurrected bodies. That is, when you're resurrected, you're going to have a glorified, wonderful body. And you will immediately, in that wonderful body, be bound by uh, fewer of the rules of life. You'll be able to be easily regathered in the sky and taken to the land of our fathers. And you will be taken there immediately. This is not really a rapture. I suppose we could argue about what the word rapture means. But it's not a rapture in the sense that you're taken up into the heavens and there you just dilly-dally up there for a long time. You're resurrected, regathered, and transported for a purpose. Okay? Verse 21, same chapter. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I'll take the children of Israel from among the heathen. Whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And finally, verse 25, if you're not sure what that land is, and for those who would like to argue that the land of regathering is the United States, I, I respectfully think it is not, as much as I really am fond of this country. Verse 25, it says, And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant. God didn't give Jacob the land of the United States, as much as we may like that wherein your fathers have dwelt. And it goes on to describe things further. So that's the resurrection and the regathering. And that is going to occur at the moment when Jesus Christ returns. But let's look real quickly now at the judgment. So we've got three things we're looking at, right? We've got immediately prior to Jesus coming, we've got what happens at his coming, and then we've got with the third major element is what's happening immediately after his coming. So the resurrection and regathering here are when he returns, now what happens immediately after he returns? It is a day of judgment. Now there are many passages in Scripture that speak of the judgment of the wicked. And the Old Testament prophets usually call it the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. That's all they call it. That's it. Now, Pastor read from Joel chapter 2, I believe it was, verses 1 and 2, so I won't read that. But another great passage, one that is uh, really excellent for this particular point. It's found in Zephaniah. And most of us don't turn to Zephaniah very often, and so you might not be able to get there very quickly, but it's uh, just before you get to the New Testament, back up of, you know, about a dozen pages, those small books, and you'll find Zephaniah. Now, if you turn to Zephaniah 1, beginning at verse 14, let me read you this passage to describe the day of the Lord. And you're going to perceive that this is associated with the second coming of Jesus. And when he comes back, there's going to be judgment upon the wicked that follows very shortly. I'll begin in verse 14 of Zephaniah 1. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. 
Kind of depressing so far, isn't it? A day of a trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood shall be poured out as dust, and their flesh as the dung. Neither shall their silver nor their gold be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. Well, there's a, there's a lot we could say about that, but many of the passages have a similar sense and feel in terms of phraseology from the Old Testament prophets. But the New Testament writers also speak of the judgment upon the wicked immediately following the return of Jesus Christ. So let me just give you one New Testament writer there, and let's go to Paul where he writes it to the book of 2 Thessalonians. This is a, this is a nice passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll begin at verse number 7. All right, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. So this is the judgment of the wicked. <clears throat> and to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you is believed in that day. All right, so that's the judgment. Now, let's shift gears and let's move into the primary focus of our discussion today. So we got the three broad elements... Now, there's a lot of other things we could talk about. We could talk about the sealing of the 144,000. We could talk about the time of sorrow. There's a lot of other elements in the second coming that we could talk about. But I'm trying to keep it accurate, yet sort of boiled down into a, either the main primary elements to keep it relatively simple so we can follow the, the major elements and not get lost in the details, which is really easy to do in eschatology. So we have that which happens prior, that which happens at the second coming, and that which happens immediately following the second coming. So we've discussed what happens following, that's the judgment of the wicked. We've discussed the resurrection and the regathering, that's what happens at the time of his coming. Now we're going to focus, we haven't discussed this yet, and this will be the primary thrust of our discussion this morning, that which happens immediately prior to his coming. What is going to be going on before he comes. What should we be thinking about? What should we be expecting? What's going to be happening? Well, for some of you, this is not a surprise. This is a period of great tribulation. So let's start discussing this business about this great tribulation, because there's much for us to be concerned about and be thinking on that's worthy of our time. All right, so as we focus on the tribulation of believers prior to Jesus Christ's return, Let's lay out a couple of Bible passages that are going to really help us. All right, let's, so let's start in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah 30 is, is really, in a sense, it's kind of a, a keystone passage. There's a, there's a verse or two there that are really very, very helpful. So we're going to start in verse number 7. Jeremiah 30, beginning at verse number 7. All right, now, it's going to be called, we're going to discover that this period of tribulation prior to Jesus Christ's return is sometimes called the time of Jacob's trouble. Many of you are not new to this conversation, and you probably have heard that phrase lifted from Scripture before. What you need to understand is the time of Jacob's trouble is before the resurrection and the regathering of Israel. So in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, we'll just break in there in the middle, it says, Alas! For that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Now, if we keep reading a little bit there, we'll discover that this is immediately prior to the resurrection, the regathering, which is referenced in verse 10. So we just read verse 7. If you drop down a little bit to verse 10, we have a, the, the theme changes from uh, bad news to good news. And by the time we get to verse 10, it describes thy seed shall return from the land of captivity. Jacob shall return and none shall 
make him afraid. That's the regathering. But that's not the only Old Testament place that places this time of Jacob's trouble immediately prior to the second coming. You go to Daniel chapter 12. Let's look at a verse or two there. In Daniel chapter 12, let's look at verses 1 and 2. Daniel 12, 1 and 2. It says, At that time shall Michael stand up. Michael. We all know who Michael is. That's the angel, isn't it? Michael. And the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And we know what people those are. That's the Israelites. And then it says, And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that is found written in the book. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So we find in verse 1 a great and terrible tribulation of some sort, so severe that the angel Michael will be sent to assist and intervene. And we find in verse 2 the resurrection of the dead. So prior, the, the, this tri- great tribulation occurs prior to the resurrection and the regathering, immediately prior to Jesus Christ's return. Now, if we go to the New Testament, we can spend quite a bit of time in New Testament passages that that are prophetic in nature. Now, there are two renderings of an account of Jesus giving a sermon, or a lecture, I guess, if you would prefer that word. But if you go to Matthew chapter 24, we're going to spend a little time in that chapter. We We can look at how Matthew records this sermon that Jesus gave. Now this sermon he gives, this discussion that he gives to his disciples, he's speaking primarily to his disciples. There may have been others that heard, but his disciples, it begins with his disciples asking him a question about the end of the time and the end of the world and the coming of the kingdom and stuff like that. And and they're just not sure exactly what to expect, when or whatever. So it's all muddled in their minds, apparently. And they'd like some clarity. So Jesus begins to answer their questions. And that's what we find in Matthew chapter 24, and then it carries on into Matthew 25. Now that same sermon is recorded in Mark chapter 13, although Mark is much more brief. But there's information in both of them that's really useful when we get to this topic. So our point right now, at this moment, the primary point I want to thrust is this. Jesus' sermon at the Temple Mount, now that's where he gave it. He was at the Temple Mount, and they were looking at the big stones and the glory of the temple, and, you know, just, whoa, look at these great big buildings and all. So Jesus' sermon at the Temple Mount places this tribulation, this great tribulation, this special tribulation, this unique tribulation, he places it immediately prior to the resurrection and the regathering. Now, let's look at that, how that plays out. We'll break into the middle. All right, he says in verse 21, Jesus tells him, he says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, if that reminds you what we just read in Daniel 12, 1, then that's good, because it's talking about the same moment in time, the same event, the same period. Now, he goes on to say some other things as we drift on down from verse 21 and 22 and so forth. And he describes this tribulation period. We're going to come back to that, but he describes it. Now, notice after he finishes his description, then he says, and this is what's next. And what's next is a description of the resurrection and the regathering. Because he dropped down to verse 29, Jesus then says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, the powers of the heaven shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. All the tribes of the earth shall mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He shall send his trumpets with angels with the sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. The word resurrection doesn't appear there, but it's there. It's part of this. 
And we know from context throughout Scripture that that's the case. The resurrection and the regathering are one in the same event. Now, we could go to Matthew, excuse me, Mark, that is the Gospel of Mark, lays it out in a very similar way. So let's just touch base real quick there in the Gospel of Mark. Remember, in Mark 13, this is the record of the same sermon, the same lecture that Jesus gave at the Temple Mount, except it's in a much briefer form. And you'll see in Mark 13, if we break into the middle in verse 19, Mark says, For in those days shall be affliction, such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created unto this time, neither shall be. There we go. Just like what we read in Matthew. A lot like what we read in Daniel. And then he, again, Jesus continues to describe that tribulation And we find if we drop on down to, uh, oh, let's drop on down to verse number 26. We'll see what happens. He describes the tribulation in verse 26. What comes next? And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. And then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the heaven to the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Now, it doesn't say what he's going to do with them, but we know from other places that what he's going to do with them is he's he's going to gather them together so they can go to the land of Israel and be restored in the kingdom of God on earth in the land of our fathers. So, again, without being too redundant, we've got what happens prior to his coming, what happens at his coming, what happens after his coming. The judgment, resurrection, the regathering, and now we have this great tribulation. It happens immediately prior to his coming with the resurrection and the regathering. So let's start to flesh this out now. So we've got this tribulation period, this great tribulation period, such as never had been before. Well, what is that all about? What does that mean? What should we think about that? What will this great tribulation be like? All right, well, first off, Let's remember one of the names that this great tribulation is called. Going back to Jeremiah 30, it is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Now that's really significant. Because when it says, since it is the time of Jacob's trouble, we need to understand that the people of Israel will be targeted. We will be targeted. Not all people will be persecuted. Most will not. Now, many people assume that the descriptions we've read of this great tribulation means that every person, every person on planet Earth is going to be under uh, a calamitous time that's going to be horrible for everybody. You know, maybe it's a nuclear holocaust with a thousand nuclear bombs all over the whole global world, and we'll have a nuclear winter, and there'll be radiation fallout, and we'll all, you know, we'll have to live underground for the next year and a half in order for a few of us to live. Well, I, you know, I don't know about that. But it says it's the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, that's significant because my understanding, as we work our way through this topic, is that this is not going to be a persecution for everyone. Not everybody's going to be suffering. Not everybody's going to be targeted. Not everybody's going to be suffering. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. Do you see the difference? This is the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob will be targeted. Jacob will be persecuted. Jacob will be suffering. That's Israel. That's you and I. That's our people. That's our white Caucasian people. That is you and I. We will be the targets. We will be the subject of the persecution, not the whole world. All right, so that's the first thing. Now, that's not a very happy thought for us that are sitting here this morning. You know, misery loves company, but we may not have all that much company. Second, it's going to be vicious. This will be a vicious persecution. The purpose of this persecution will be extermination. Okay. In Mark 13, let's go back to Mark 13. We skipped over between verse... We read in Mark 13, verse 19, and then I jumped into 27. 
let's, let's back up and look at a little bit of that which I skipped over. Verses 19 and 20 begin to describe a little bit about this persecution. So we've already got, the affliction shall be such as was not from the beginning of creation which God created to this time, neither shall be. And then in verse 20 it says, And except the Lord that had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. No flesh should be saved except somehow God will intervene and shorten that period. But for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. Now notice it says, for the sake of the elect, for the sake of the chosen, he has shortened the days. Now, in another study, in another time, we've discussed from this pulpit, I've discussed, and Pastor Gaiman has, and you probably, many of you are familiar with the idea that the elect and the chosen, of course, are out of Israel. It is Israel that is the elect, it is Israel is the chosen, it is Israel is the apple of God's eye, and it is for their sake that it, has, it will be shortened. Now when it says, no flesh shall be saved, what are we supposed to infer from that particular phrase? So you could say, well, flesh means, you know, the flesh and meat and muscle of the body. That, that is true. That is what the word flesh means if you do just look at it up in the Greek. But what are we supposed to infer about what that flesh, does that mean all flesh, as in all the animals, or the dogs, and the cats, and will the cattle, and the snakes, are, are, all, are, are they all going to be, is that all flesh? No. That makes zero sense contextually with Scripture. You say, well, maybe that means all people everywhere. All people of every race and every color will be suffering. Well, that's what a lot of people would interpret that to mean, but I don't think that's correct either. I think we should infer from that that all Israelite flesh, all Israelite folk. Now you might say, well, Mr. Benson, you're just reading too much into it. That's not what that really means. Well, let's just keep going, all right? Before you just cast me aside on that point, let's just keep going. When I say that this perp the purpose of this tribulation will be vicious, it will be extermination, that's the purpose. Israel will be targeted, not all people will be persecuted. And I say that, I, I do have some reasons for that. We could go back to Matthew 24. So if you'd like, flip on back to Matthew 24. And I'll read a couple of verses there because we have some similar wording in Matthew chapter 24 on this particular point. So again, back in Matthew 24, I, I read verse 21. And we skipped ahead down to verse 29 to 31, but I, I left out, I didn't read the description of this. And we do want to spend a little time in some of this business about the description. It says there in Matthew 21, except those days should be shortened, this great tribulation, as is mentioned in Matthew 21, now we're in 22, it says there should no flesh be saved. But again, for the elect's sake, it will be shortened. So my argument here is the same as what I articulated in Mark. But there's more. Matthew and Mark are not the only places that describe the second coming of Jesus and describe this great tribulation period and describe these kind of struggles. I'd like to take you to the book of Revelation. Now the book of Revelation is an interesting book, a fascinating book, but it is a difficult book. It may be perhaps one of the most difficult books in all of Scripture to try to sort out all the details. And typically, when you get people together to discuss the details of Revelation, there's often a lot of disagreement because it is complex, difficult. But out of the portions that are more difficult to understand, there is one chapter that I think is less difficult. And right about the middle, we have Revelation chapter 12. It is one of the easiest chapters that it can, that in which the clues that are internally present, it kind of interprets itself. We don't have to infer and say, well, gee, is this, is this verse in Revelation figurative? Is it literal? What kind of clues am I looking for to help work all this out? Well, Revelation 12 internally has its own clues to deduce rather quickly and easily what the words in that chapter mean. 
And Revelation 12 is a snapshot of world history. It's a snapshot of thousands of years of world history, of a great struggle that really began thousands of years ago and takes us to this climax of time, the return of Christ, and this, what we're interested in at the moment, this great tribulation. So let's look at a couple of verses from Revelation 12. Again, I'm trying to just show you that, that this great tribulation is going to be for the purpose of extermination of a single people. So Revelation 12, 1, it says, There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, that verse all by itself, if you have a pretty good understanding of Scripture, a reasonable understanding of Scripture, you can infer right there that this woman is symbolic. This is a, this is a special woman, and this woman is Israel. The clues itself tell you that this woman is Israel with the 12 stars, 12 tribes, the sun, the moon under her feet, reminding us of Jacob and the dream of Joseph, the sons of Jacob. We can perceive that this woman is Israel. But if that's not enough, we could kind of drop on down and see what else happens to this woman. And it describes this woman is giving birth to a child. And pretty quickly... You can perceive this child that she gave birth to is, has got to be Jesus. Well, Jesus came out of a woman, came out of Israel. Jesus was born out of the race of Israel. And then it just goes on to discuss there's a war here, and you've got the villain, and you've got the, you've got the, the woman, the woman is Israel, and you've got this great villain that appears. And this villain is described as a great red dragon. And then we discover there's a war, and defending and helping the woman is Michael. Remember Michael and his angels standing up for Israel in Daniel 12, 1. Well, we have a war where Michael and his angels fight, and they're fighting against the dragon and his angels. So we see there's a great war going on. And this war is between the good guys and the bad guys, and the good guys is, is Israel, and the defenders of Israel, and the villain is the devil. Satan, Lucifer, the dragon, and Satan, the old serpent called the devil and Satan, verse 9. Well, let's get on down a little bit further. So we have this conflict. So we get down toward the end. Let's break, I guess, into verse number 13. Let me read for you verses 13 on down. And we really kind of getting from 13 to the end, we're getting to sort of the sort of the climax of this ongoing conflict. It says, when the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, which brought forth the man child, Jesus. And to the woman were given two wings of an eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. All right, so she's going to escape for a while, where she's nourished for a while. And then it says, the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. Well, we could spend a lot of time on that verse, but you get the sense that the, the devil is after the woman, right? Can you see that? He's after the woman. Amen. And then it says the earth helps the woman. Oh, a little surprise help here. But verse 17, this really clinches it. The dragon was wroth, angry with the woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say the devil was angry with the world or angry with everyone. He was angry, he was wroth with the woman. And in particular, he focuses on the remnant of the woman. Now, why does it say he is after the remnant of her seed? Well, there's a couple possibilities, but one possibility is, is that he was successful in destroying most of them already. Maybe the flood carried, did carry away many of the woman's offspring. And now he's down to the last remnant. And he's angry, but he's thinking, I've got them. There's not many left. What I'm trying to emphasize here is our, as the last point on the first page when I say that the purpose of this 
is extermination. That's what the Great Tribulation is about. It's about persecuting the woman, targeting the people of Israel, and targeting them really alone with the purpose of destroying every last one of them. Now, if Satan can't stop God in some respects, there's one other way. He can have a trump card. The kingdom of God is going to have no value at all if all of God's people are dead. If he can successfully destroy them all, every last one of them, one way or another, he's really undermined God's great purpose. All right, well, let's continue. Let's, let's go to the point C, the third point. So what we're looking at is we're trying to get a sense of what this great tribulation will be like. So far, the situation's kind of gloomy. But let's go to the next one. And we'll return to the Gospel of Mark for a verse worth consideration. All right, I've written down there on the outline that the pressure will result in a breakdown of family loyalty. A breakdown of family loyalty. Hmm. You know, Mark 13, verse 12, describes it like this. It says, Now the brother shall betray the brother to death. And the father, the son, the children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. Boy, that's a tragic thing, isn't it? That sounds really, really tragic. If you sing, just imagine that in your own family for a while, you just, what, what terrible pain and tragedy that must be. But that's what Scripture tells us. Well, now here's another element. Turns out we get a sense of this great tribulation from John 16. Now, scattered throughout the New Testament are other passages that describe prophetic elements. John 16, 2, I think, has a little nugget worth mentioning. And this is an unfortunate circumstance. But I believe many of our persecutors will think that they are following God's will. They will think they are following God's will. And we get a snapshot of that in John, in John 16, verse 2, when it says, They shall put you out of the synagogues. And the word synagogue means meeting house or church building. They shall put you out. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think he doeth God service. Now, that's not a new thing. St. Paul killed members of the early church thinking he was doing God a service. Later, he was dramatically converted. And in great repentance, he turned his life in the opposite direction and fortunately did far more good than he had done evil. Now, why will that happen? Why is it that some of the persecutors might be people that are thinking they're doing God's will? And why might some of our family members be willing to turn against us and betray us, even unto death? Well, this next point will help us. And this is worthy of really thinking and reflecting on. And we're going to have to go back to Matthew chapter 24. We could look in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13. We'll just go to Matthew 24, though, to save us a little time, because they read very similarly. But flip back to Matthew 24. What we need to understand about this period of tribulation is that it's going to be a time of confusion, a time of panic, a time of wild rumors. It will be difficult to know who to believe. Now, right now, we sometimes scratch our heads about that ourselves. You know, we live in a time in, in which many of the traditional institutions that are supposed to be the guardians of truth, have come to prove in themselves very unreliable. Obviously, the media, very unreliable. But other institutions, politics, you know, academia, so forth, the institutions that are supposed to be the guardians of truth, in the last 40, 50 years, we've kind of, they're getting more and more unreliable. 
And so that leaves you and I in this problem about, who do I believe? You don't really have time to research every topic. You don't have time to, to study out everything for yourself. You've got to pick an expert that you think you can trust. Whether that's a given political event like 9-11, how did it happen, what really happened, well, you're going to end up having to sort of read a little bit because you've got to go back to work, you know. You've got things to do, and you're going to lean on this expert because you find that expert trustworthy. Someone else is leaning on another expert. But it's every, all many, many topics. It's not ju- just, obviously not just that one. There's, 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 there's scores of topics. Everything from religion to climate to, uh, you know, fuel and, and the economy and and just just everything, even even things like, you know, are, are there really space aliens out there? And did they did, are they did they really find a, a capsule that fell from the sky and there was really some sort of alien body in there? Who's your expert that you're going to trust? You can't go check it out. Who really killed JFK? Well, there's another one. That's a that's a great one. Who are you going to trust? That's the problem. The problem is we live in a time. Is we really can't, there's, we can't trust the institutions that traditionally have been telling us this is true and this is true and this is true. So our grandfathers didn't have it perfect, but they had it better than we did. That they had a sense, well, I, I think I can probably trust what the university professors are telling me. Or I think I can trust what they're telling us in the newspapers. Or I think I can probably trust what my governor is saying or maybe a senator is saying. And, and that much of that's been eroded. Now take the the problem we have now of not knowing who to believe and multiply that by about 20 and imagine that kind of confusion and panic and bewilderment at this time of great tribulation, this time in which you're targeted, your family's targeted, your people are targeted, your church is targeted, your community is targeted, and you are desperate and you need help. You need help and you don't know who you can believe. You want someone to reach out and give you some advice. Who do I believe? Who do I trust? So let's read from Matthew 24. One of the things that we're going to be confused about is when Jesus Christ is going to return at what moment? Now, when it says, when the Bible says elsewhere that no man knoweth the day nor the hour, that, that really is true. No man knows the day nor the hour. Now, we, from the study of Scripture, get a sense of this reality. We can sense, okay, there's this tribulation period. And the tribulation period is going to come to an end when Jesus comes back. So, you're in tribulation and you're going to say, boy, I sure hope he comes soon. You're going to really want that. You're going to long to believe that Jesus has come back. When someone says, I think he's here, you're going to want to believe it's true. You're going to want to believe it. When somebody says, I think he's here, I think he's here, because that means the tribulation ends for you. That means you made it. That means you survived. That means the pain is over, the suffering, the the, the turmoil, as well as the bewilderment and the confusion. All of it's over. Jesus is going to come back. Has Jesus returned? Ah, here's the warning now. Look at Matthew 24 in light of the way I've described the situation. Jesus warns us now to be careful about who to believe. When they say Jesus has returned, be careful. Be careful. That is the moment in which the deception may be the greatest. The problem is the greatest of deception. So, we've read verse 21 and 22 of Matthew. All right, we've got the great tribulation, verse 21. This great tribulation is so bad that no flesh should survive. None of the Israelite people of God are going to be saved unless God comes to shorten it. Has He shortened it yet? Has the hour arrived? Then Jesus says, okay, you better be careful. Because Jesus says, then if any man shall say unto you, lo, here is Christ, or there, 
believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs, false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. When someone says Jesus has returned, and I've got the proof, look at the signs and the wonders, you're going to want to believe it. You're going to hope it's true. There's a big part of you that's going to say, man, I hope that's true. But Jesus is cautioning us, don't fall for it. Don't be deceived. Verse 25 and 26. Behold, I've told you before. I'm, I'm warning you. I've, I've already told you this, but I'm warning you again. Wherefore, if they say unto you, Behold, he's in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he's in the secret chambers, believe it not. So if we're in the tribulation, somebody says, I'm pretty sure Jesus came back. There's this guy out there, there's this guy out there down, down there. He's in, uh, he's in Arizona. <laughs> he's Jesus. He's doing signs and wonders. He's come back. Let's go see him down there in the desert. Believe it not. Hey, there's another guy. He's doing signs and wonders. Let's go check him out. He's hiding out. He's in a secret place. Let's go check it out. Believe him not. Then we have a little bit more description about the second coming. Verse 27, lightning comes out of the east and shines to the west. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. What that's really telling us, I believe, is that when Jesus does come back, you will absolutely not miss it. It'll be absolutely unmistakable. If, if, if you're alive at all, you're going to notice. You're going to know it. So we don't need to worry about missing it. So if you scratch your head and say, well, maybe it's here. Did I miss it? If you're thinking, maybe I missed it, you didn't miss it. <laughs> it's going to be unmistakable. All right. Finally, some of us are probably going to be at a point where we're going to think, really, you know, none of us are going to make it through this. That really is the, the, the feel and the sentiment that we're going to have in this great tribulation. But now I'd like to go to the last portion of our discussion. Let's go to the last part. And, I, and I'm describing it in this way. What can we do now to be more ready for such a dreadful time? Because what I've laid out is pretty discouraging. Now, a lot of people really get lost in, in eschatology, uh, or maybe I shouldn't say lost, but they kind of get a little sidetracked and and maybe spend too much time on that which is difficult to know. You know, a lot of energy is spent on figuring out who the persecutor is. And there's been lots of debate and discussion, and it's a good topic to, to examine. While we're being persecuted, who are the persecutors, or who is the chief persecutor? Is it the Antichrist, the beast? If it's the beast, who is the beast? Is the beast the, the Pope? Is the beast... Well, you know, some people of the first century thought the beast was Nero. Later on in the third century, they thought it was Diocletian. He's a pretty nasty guy if you'd like to read about Diocletian. Real, real mean, nasty fellow. There have been lots of candidates that have been put forth as the beast, the Antichrist. And that's worthy of investigating, I suppose. But for our purpose this morning, instead of investigating on that, which a lot of people spend a lot of time on, we need to focus on what it's like on the other end. And so that's what we've been doing here, to understand what we can expect. And now the question is, how can we be ready? How can we respond? What should we be thinking about and doing right now? In this great, if this great tribulation is coming, whenever that is, near, maybe not so near, I don't know. All right, so there's a few thoughts. So let's roll through this. Number one, the first thing that we can be doing now to be more ready for such a dreadful time is this. Be immersed in God's promise that a remnant will be saved out of trouble. Be immersed in that. That's a valid thought. Jeremiah 37 says that Jacob will be saved out of it. A remnant will be saved out of it. Revelation famously describes in chapter 7 the 144,000. And the sealing of the 144,000, in which they will be essentially untouchable. 
Well, that's a happy thought. Now, if you want to aspire to be a part of that 144,000, I have no objection to you making that one of your hopes. But before you do, there's more to think about. All right? There's more to think about than just saying, I want to be part of that 144,000. And that takes us to our second point. You need to yield your thinking to the sovereignty of God. That old doctrine called the sovereignty of God, who works all things for His glory and the ultimate good of your soul. Not your body, your soul. Your soul. God is concerned about the inner you and how to perfect that inner you. And perfecting the inside of you may require a lot of abuse of the outside of you. So that takes us to this next thought. And I'd really want you to reflect on this. We're on point C. I believe each of us have to really soberly, when we think about the second coming, and we think about the great tribulation to come, you need to be prepared to die with your faith intact. But everything else stripped from you. That is, be prepared to part emotionally and mentally and spiritually with everything else that this world may have given you, except your faith. That includes, obviously, our wealth, which we can't take anyway. Your health, some of your family, many of your friends, and even your reputation. Only your faith will remain to you. That's it. Only your faith. Now, for those of you who like history and like to study the stories of martyrs, there are some wonderful stories that can be explored concerning various martyrs at various epochs of history. Some of them are famous. I'll, just real quick, I'll give you one very short story of someone who many consider a martyr. Some might not, but it's a good story anyway. So the first trip I went to Europe with my father, um, we went to London. We went to the Tower of London. You've probably heard of the Tower of London, right? A great big giant castle kind of in the center part of the city. So they gave us a tour of the Tower of London. Now, I'm a history guy, so I kind of knew a lot about the Tower of London and saw some of the famous people who'd been in and out of the Tower of London. Well, back in the 1500s, there was a famous prisoner there, and his name was Sir Thomas More. Now, the story of Sir Thomas More goes like this. Old King Henry VIII, pretty powerful king, he says, I don't like my first wife, I want a divorce. And in those days, the Pope had to say, you give agreement. You can't get divorced unless I say so. That's the rules of the game back in the early 1500s. Henry says, the Pope, give me a divorce from my wife. He thought he had good reasons. Pope says, sorry, no divorce for you. You're stuck with her. Henry says, well, fooey on you. I'm going to do what they're doing over there in Germany, and we're just going to break away from the Roman Catholic Church, and I'll be the head of the church. I'll be like the Pope in England. I'll be the head of the church. I'll not just be the big boss in politics. I'll be the big boss in religion. And as the big boss in religion, the head of the church, I'll grant myself the divorce I want, and I'll, I'll go with my second wife, and everything will just turn out swimmingly. Well, not everybody in England was too keen on that idea, and one of them was this guy, Sir Thomas More. Sir Thomas More was essentially like the equivalent of the attorney general in our country. He was King Henry's chief law enforcement officer. Well, what more, he had been King Henry's personal friend for many years. They did all kinds of things together. They'd go play tennis together and go hunting together. They were chums. And then, all of a sudden, Henry gets this, this plan in motion, and Thomas More said, oops, I can't go with it. Moore says, I can't go with it. Uh, Henry, um, <clears throat> look, if the Pope grants you your divorce, fine, I'll go with that. But I can't go with this idea that you're like the Pope. You can't grant your own divorce, you're not the head of the church. So that got him in big trouble. So Henry says, all right, Thomas, I'll give you some time to think about it. So he throws Sir Thomas More into the dungeon in the Tower of London. And so when I was there, 
because this is a well-known story, some of you probably have heard this before, they take you on a tour, and they include this stone cell. Got little tiny windows, gray walls, and stone floor, and they say, this is where Sir Thomas More sat. How long was he there? He was there for, I don't know, over a year, I believe. Henry thought that Thomas More, after sitting in the dungeon for a while, would change his mind. Well, he didn't. Because all Thomas had to do was say, okay, Henry, you can have your divorce, you can have your wife, you can be head of the church, it's okay with me. I'll, I'll, I'll back down. Thomas More never did. In the end, what happened was, Thomas More lost everything. Thomas More, before he got out of the dungeon, he lost his health, because they're cold and clammy and horrible places to stay, because there's no heat. Just sleep on the straw, and in the wintertime, it's cold. Lost his health. His entire family was stripped away from him. He lost all of his wealth. He obviously lost his career, and he lost his life. When he finally did come out of the dungeon, it was only to go chop his head off. And in, for a while, he lost his reputation. Henry was powerful. Thomas More had defied him, and nobody was about to say, oh, that's my hero. Everybody's like, who? <laughs> Thomas More, what a, what a foolish man. Lost his head for no good reason. All right, he lost his reputation. It wasn't for like three, 250 years that finally Thomas More's reputation was sort of revivified as Henry VIII's reputation kind of went down, and we all remember him as the guy who had the eight wives and, you know, screwed up England real bad, right? Six wives, sorry. So what's the point of that little story? The point of the story is all of us, whether we talk about that particular man who died for what he believed in or others who have died for what they believed in, we've got to be really mentally prepared, really, really, to die for what we believe. We can't hang our hope, in my opinion. I'm, I'm sure I'm one of the 144,000. I'm sure I'm there. I'm sure I'm one of them. I think that's unwise. We've got to be ready, fully ready, to suffer all that I've described. Everything, everything stripped from you. Your health, your wealth, some of your family, many of your friends, even your reputation. And in the end, you die with nothing but your faith. Nothing. Can you do that? Nothing. You die alone in a cold stone cell with nothing but a clear conscience before God. Could you do that? Are you strong enough? Do you believe that much? Alone in a cold cell with nothing but a clear conscience before God. No one to cheer you. No one to visit you. No one in your corner. No one to say, this is great. You're grand. You're doing such a fantastic job standing up for your values. Oh, they might say that about you a hundred years later. <laughs> but not at the moment that counts. Could you do that? Well, I believe many of us need to be prepared to do that. Now, the idea, one, one other thought that may bolster you, though, and let me spend the last few minutes talking about this briefly. Well, we've got a couple points, so I'll, I'll kind of pick up the pace as we close. Revelation 6 has a wonderful passage. It turns out that martyrs have a special reward. I believe we need to be excited. You should be excited about the special reward of the martyrs. Because martyrs get a front row seat with God in the kingdom of heaven. Martyrs have it special. It says in Revelation 6, beginning at verse number 9. When he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell in the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest, yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also, and their brethren, that they should be killed, as they were, should be fulfilled. So, the martyrs are going to get a special white robe. They need to learn to be patient. And look at the geography of heaven. Now, I don't know a lot about the geography of heaven. 
I know it describes heaven, the, the heaven that's going to come down to earth as having a river and there's going to be a temple. There's all these 12 fruits of trees and stuff. But there's one thing that's really special. That altar. Where is the altar? The altar is the center of the temple. And where are these souls resting? They are resting under the altar. They are like in the most important place, perhaps, in the kingdom of heaven. Martyrs have a special reward. If we go on to Revelation 7, it describes those people in, the, in these white robes again. And it describes them as being unique and special and valued. You say, well, are you, do, you, do you want to hope to be a martyr? Well, I'm not sure I want that. But there have been people who've hoped for that. You think, what? Really? Really? People hope to be martyred? Absolutely. Both in the early church... And in the Reformation era, there were people that hoped and longed to suffer martyrdom. Now, that's a different frame of mind from what we think. Uh, we're kind of like, hey, at all costs, I want to keep on living. They didn't think that way back in the days, third and fourth century. They didn't think that way necessarily back in the 15 and 1600s. Let me read you one historian who comments on this. He said, for the first three centuries after the death of Christ, martyrdom came to be seen as the perfection of the Christian life. It came to be seen as the preparation for it, so that a believer would be ready and prepared for what came to be called the final sacrament of love. Your final sacrament of love is your death for Christ. Martyrdom was the early, for early Christians, excuse me, martyrdom was, for the early Christians, the sign of the perfect disciple, the sign of the perfect imitation of Christ, and the sign of the perfect identity with Jesus Christ. So their thinking was, you want to identify with Christ? You need to be a martyr. After all, Jesus died. You want to be the perfect imitation of Christ? You need to be a martyr. And so many actually, hard to believe, they hoped that they might be worthy to be a martyr. And they longed for it. That, that's, that's such a totally strange thought for all of us, I think, that I can hardly get my mind wrapped around that thought that they might actually hope, hope for it. But I've read a few stories, and I, I think that what I'm describing is actually true. So between those two extremes... Those who are hoping to be martyred and those who are hoping to be part of the 144,000, where does that leave you and me? Well, I don't know about this. I don't really think I want that. But how about this? How about we land in the middle and we just say, I want to do the will of God. How about that? Can you raise your hand and say, I want to do the will of God. I am willing to do the will of God. If it is the will of God that he believes I can best serve him by being sealed and thus untouchable, or if it's the will of God that I be martyred and join the souls under the altar and have the white robe and have an esteemed place in the kingdom of heaven, I'll go either way. I'll let God decide. But I am willing. I am willing to do what God wishes in my life, even to the extent of all the possible suffering that might come with that. That, I believe, is where we should aim. Now, your faith in Christ ultimately is going to be, have a cheerful ending in this respect. It's a bit like waiting for the entrance of all greatest superheroes. Jesus Christ is going to come and he's going to smash the wicked with ease and he's going to feed the bodies of the wicked to the vultures. In fact, it even says so. In Revelation chapter 19, it says Jesus is going to return. He's going to have an army with him. He's going to smash the wicked. And he's going to call the fowls of heaven to come and eat the bodies of the wicked. We won't read it because we're running out of time. But I want to close with two more two passages. If you'll indulge me, I know I'm a little bit over, but we're just about done. Now, as a final thought, in terms of how we can be more ready for such a dreadful time, 
This is a final thought, and I think it's a very, very important thought. So just stick with me another two or three minutes. We need to learn to love our fellow believers in the church. We need to learn to love our fellow believers in the church. In the congregation that you are a part of, do you love them? Do you love most of them? Do you love some of them? Do you have a heart to love all of them, even the ones that you really don't really all like all that much? Or the ones that you're really disappointed in? Can you find it to love all the brethren? Now, I want you to read these passages with me as we close. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. 1 Peter 1, 22. Stick with me. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. You see that? It says an unfeigned love of the brethren. That means, that means not fake. Amen. Not fake love. Real love. Fervent love. A pure heart. Now 1 John. It takes it a step further. How much love might you have for your brethren in the church? 1 John chapter 3. There's a lot of love in 1 John 3 we're going to discover when it comes to loving your brethren. Verse 14. It says, I'm in 1 John 3, 14. I hope you're looking at it with me. I pray you do. We're just about finished. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. That's how you know that you have eternal life. It's one of the, the, the ways you know that the, your, your eternal security is sure if you have love of the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Now look at verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now that's a lot of love. When you love the others in the faith, in the fellowship, in the congregation, in the church, enough that you would give your life for them. That's tough. That's tough. Not saying give just your life for your wife, for your child, or for this one or that one. Just any of them. That's tough. Well, that's our calling. That's our high standard. And that's how we can be more ready for the future and how we can be more ready for the dreadful time known as the time of Jacob's trouble. Thank you very much. God bless you all.